follow his path of their, their judgment. Now, uh, we began our series with Tawheed. We went through the section on Tawheed already, you know, which has to do with the um, Islamic concept of Allah's oneness. Uh, after that, we then looked at the basic uh, sources of Islam. And in looking at the basic sources of Islam, we identified them as four. There are four basic sources. Now, uh, we said they were the Quran, Sunnah, Ijma'ah, and Tiyat. We explained the Sunnah, the, the Quran, of course, we all knew. We looked in somewhat into the Quran and, and um, what separates it from other statements of the Prophet Muhammad, etc. And um, uh, we looked at the Sunnah, we looked at the Sunnah, we said the Sunnah was you know, statements, actions, and approvals of the Prophet, which were conveyed to later generations. And um, we looked at the Jama'ah, and we said the Jama'ah was the things which, after the time of the Prophet, when certain problems arose, uh, and um, there were no solutions, or clear solutions, in the Quran and the Sunnah, that the uh, Prophet's companions would gather together and come to some kind of consensus of opinion on a particular issue, how they would handle it. But even this consensus would be based in one way or another on a concept which already existed in the Quran or the Sunnah. And the last category we said was Qiyas. And Qiyas we said was the uh, reduction of new laws by analogy, which we would use, say, today. If a problem arises today, for example, uh, a person is uh, an astronaut. Right? We have our salah set according to certain times of the day. We have Fajr, Dur, Asr, Maghrib, and Asia set based on the movement of the sun, etc. What if a person is an astronaut? Right? If he's up circling the earth. Or if he lives in the North Pole, where there's six months of day and six months of night. What does he do? Because this is now where we use the concept of Qiyas. We have to determine, maybe because obviously in the time of the Prophet Muhammad the area where the Quran was revealed was in Arabia, in this same area. And the problems that were solved at that time were the problems which were common to this area. There were certain principles given which could be applied in later times, but basically the problems which were solved were relative to the problems which existed in this area. And um, so we would then have to look into some of the Quran or into the statements of the Prophet to see if there is a principle which could be applied, you know, from, taken from this and applied to this particular problem. Now, of course, there, there is, and you know, another time, inshallah, we'll go into that. But now, what I wanted to go into today is the Sunnah. We looked at the Quran, and we looked at um, some of the basic principles in terms of tafsir, looking at how the Quran was collected, and um, how it was revealed, and the, the Meccan surahs and the Medinan surahs, and, and the significance of them. We looked at those. And um, now, actually there's more things to be taken also there, but so as not to make the classes one-sided, we spend, you know, like maybe two months only on tafsir. I'm going to shift now into sunnah. We're going to some sunnah. 
then we go on to some fiqh we go into hadith now we go to some fiqh and then we come back again to tafsir so we do sections from each huh? so uh, what we'll uh, look at today is the sunnah first thing to to understand you know, concerning the sunnah is uh, we said that the sunnah was sayings, actions and approvals of the Prophet which were collected by his companions observed by his companions collected and handed down and recorded they are now embodied in books where we can find different books of hadith what they call hadith now when we say sayings and actions see when you look at the different hadith uh, you will see like the most of the hadiths we see now in English, you will see, it will say, you know, this companion, the name of one of the Prophet's companions, mention the name first, you know, it will say Ibn Abbas, or it will say, you know, um, Anas, or Abu Huraira, these are some of the names of some of the companions of the Prophet, and they would say, Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, said, right, he said something, right, for example, he said, we have one hadith in Sahih Bukhari, where, you know, Ibn Omar, another one of the companions of the Prophet said that Prophet Muhammad said innamal amal bin niyat the deeds are judged by their intentions right okay now that is an example of a saying of the Prophet as a saying action now another hadith you may find for example uh, another companion saying say for example Anas Anas Ibn Malik one of the companions of the Prophet he said, I prayed behind Prophet Muhammad and I never heard him recite Bismillahirrahmanirrahim before saying Surah al This is an action. Because this companion now is describing an action of the Prophet. That before, although we all know when we're learning Salah, we learn there is Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, we say this. And then, Alhamdulillah, we read Fatiha. Now, this Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, he didn't read aloud. He said it to himself. Okay? So, this is this. How do we know that this is from a statement made by the companion describing an action of the Prophet? You understand? This is like an action. An example of an approval. For example, um, uh, on one occasion, Ibn Abbas reported that he had gone with the Prophet Muhammad to visit over to one of his wife's houses and they were serving some lizard right, there's a particular desert lizard here called Dob it's like a sort of like, you know, it's the family of Iguana but it's a big fat lizard, right and um, they eat it in this region here, I don't know, if some of you might have seen people with them you know, it's got sort of spines on the back kind of, it's got five body. It, it's a, it's but it's a lizard, it's a form of lizard, huh? it's got a long tail, and in any case, uh, it was eaten in certain parts of Arabia. So, they were going to serve it to Prophet Muhammad and uh, one of his wives knew or felt that he might not like it, so she asked one of the, the wives who was serving it, uh, did you tell him that he is, you're giving him Bob, the two? She said no. So they informed him. When they informed him, he was just about to eat some. When they informed him, he put it, put it down. Okay. So Ibn Abbas was sitting there with him. He said, "This is haram." Prophet said, "This is 
I just, in my area, uh, we didn't eat it. I'm not used to it. I don't like it. So Ibn Abbasi ate it. He said, I ate it. Right in front of him. So the fact that he ate it in front of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Right? He ate it in front of the Prophet and the Prophet did not forbid him from doing so. This indicates that the eating of this particular kind of lizard or things similar to that are allowed. You understand? Huh? So we have three basic categories in which the, the sunnah occurs. Things which the Prophet said, don't do this or do this or this is so or that is so. Things that he did where his companions described him. he did this or he did that and there are some things which were done in his presence which he allowed to be done see anything which was done in his presence which he didn't speak about that thing is automatically considered allowable because it was his duty it was his duty that if anything was done in his presence anything was done in his presence if he saw it, he had to point out that it was right or it was wrong. He had to. It was required of him. So from that, it's understood from in Islam that if anything was done in his presence and he didn't say anything about it, then that thing is allowed. Okay? Those are the three basic categories. Now, what is the significance really of the Sunnah? One, and we looked at this to some degree when we were looking at the Quran, the Sunnah explains details of the Qur'an which you may not get from just reading the basic text. The Sunnah gives explanation. It becomes the practical explanation and application of the Qur'an. Right? The Qur'an tells us to do this, to pray. Many places in the Qur'an you read it says, pray. But you cannot find anywhere in the Quran where it tells us how to pray. Right? And this is why in Islam, you see, we don't, you know, it's not acceptable for somebody to say, okay, I'm following Quran, that's it. No, because if you're going to say you follow Quran, there are many things concerning Islam and understanding principles of Islam which are not there in the Quran. The Prophet Muhammad, he put that Quran into practice. He showed how. That's why he said, another statement one of his companions reported that he said, Sallu usalli. Pray as you saw me pray. So he would demonstrate. On one occasion when he was in the masjid, he would make he made um, praying in front of the companions. He would climb up, he went up on the mimbar, he had a sort of a raised platform that he used to uh, uh, give his give the talk on that, which would raise it above. Everybody used to sit on the ground, like in Right? And then, there would be like a raised platform, say, you know, a little higher than this, which would just get him above the people's heads that he would talk on, right? Platform. It had three stairs, three steps. What he did, was he started to pray on top of that. Make a lot up there. When the time came to make sujood, what he did was he backed down the stairs and made sujood at the bottom. Then he went back up there, made the arm and the walk. Okay. And then at the end of it, he said, I only did this so that you may learn the method of my prayer. How the prayer should be done. 
So we see that from his sunnah, from his practice, statements he makes about Salah, what he did. This shows us now how we are supposed to pray. See, the thing is, when you go around different parts of the Muslim world, or you come in contact with Muslims from various parts of the world, you may find them praying in different ways. I mean, the basic prayer will be the same. Saying Fatiha, saying the surah after it, you know, saying Allahu Akbar to begin, going to Rukur, going to Sujood, sitting, settling, and on to the end. The basic format will be the same. But, there may be things in between, whether a person, when he, before going into Rukur, he raises his hand before going to Rukur. When he comes out of Rukur, he raises his hand again. Some people do, some people don't. Right. Uh, some people, when they go into Rukur, you know, they just stay down for a second and they straight up. Or when they come up, for example, when they come up from Rukur, you know, if they're coming up from Rukur, they come up at this and they're going down. Right. Some people, when they come out of Rukur, they stand. Right. These many different things. These are only just some examples I'm giving you. Or when they're sitting, they may sit with one foot one way, they may sit with the feet another way. A number of different things. Okay, these are variations we see. Okay, now some of these variations are acceptable, and some of them are not. We can't just look at it all and say, "Oh, it's all right. You can just do anything you want to do." We can't. You see, that's Christianity. Christianity, you can do anything you want to do as long as you say you believe that you know Jesus died for our sins, etc. Right? God died on the cross for our sins. It doesn't matter how you do, how you pray, all these other things, you can do anything you want to do. Right? That's why you find new sects coming up. You know, every year you have some new person comes up, he's got his own way, right? In Islam, no. It is not for everybody to just do what they want to do. Because the Prophet Muhammad said, pray as you saw me pray. What does that mean? Did we see him pray? Did any of us see Prophet Muhammad pray? No. We didn't see him pray. But how can we see him pray? By going back to the Hadith. When we go to Hadith, Hadith are describing him. Here's his companion saying, I saw him do this, I saw him do that, he said this, he did that. It's very detailed. If you go into any of the books of Hadith, Bukhari, Muslim, every one of you who is able should buy a copy of Bukhari. They have it for 200 riyals, nine volumes. Muslim for about a hundred riyals, four volumes. Those are two basic books of hadith, and they are the most authentic books in Islam. Outside of the Quran, after Quran, the most authentic books in Islam are Sahih Bukhari, it's called Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim. So every one of you who is able should buy a copy. They are available in town, in the Haramein bookstore, also in the Khalij Center, this uh, international bookstore they have upstairs in the second floor there they have many many different books they have up there they have a new copy coming very good copy printed in uh, Lebanon anyway the point is so for us to obey that command Sallu Kamara Sallu pray then we have to look to Hadith see what the Hadith says now the Hadith will tell us the Hadith are going to say we saw him do this we saw him do that we saw him do this so 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 then we look now we look at what people are doing or they're doing this, they're doing that, doing that. Okay. This thing, okay, said he did this. So we say, okay, you can do that. That thing, no mention of him doing that. So we say, no, it's not part of it. Right? Because Islam is what Prophet Muhammad brought. It's not what our grandfathers did, or what the people in Iraq do, or what the people in, you know, uh, India do, or anything like this. Islam... Uh, Islam is 
what the Prophet Muhammad brought. Right? This is the basic principle we have to work on. So, from the Sunnah, we said the basic uh, importance of the Sunnah is that it clarifies the meanings of the Quran. Another basic uh, principle of the Sunnah is that it may give laws which are not in the Quran at all. There are some laws which come from the Sunnah which are not found in the Quran at all. See, many of the things, for example, we have general commands in the, in the, in the Quran, general statements in the Quran, and the Sunnah clarifies these statements, explains how to do it, explains certain details of it that are not mentioned in the Quran. But there are some cases where there are laws which the Prophet Muhammad gave which are not found in the Quran at all. For example, the Prophet Muhammad said one day he got up on the limber in the masjid in Medina and he held up some silk in one hand and gold in the other. And he said, these two are forbidden to the males of my ummah, but allowed to the women. If you go in the Quran anywhere, can you find any mention of gold and silver? Those of you that read the Quran from beginning to end, you won't find any mention. I mean, beyond, you know, it's all talking about the, um, the, the other, the rich people, how they gathered up, you know, wealth and so on and so forth. But there's no mention specifically of gold and silver about where it is or not where it is. So this is a law which the Prophet Muhammad gave, which has no, nothing stated in the Quran concerning So we have certain laws there. So it means that for a Muslim man, he's not allowed to wear gold. Gold rings, gold necklaces, gold bracelets, these things are not allowed to wear. Haram. Forbidden. And silk. I mean real silk. Silk, uh, shirts, soaps, these type of things are not allowed to wear. Those two things are forbidden. This is the commandment of said, This is there, it is not found in the Quran. So the Sunnah also brought certain laws which are not found in the Quran. Okay? We also have in the Sunnah um, uh, you could say like a, an example from the human point of view. Right? Because if the Qur'an had been brought, I mean it was the book, everything was in the book. All the details of Islam was in the book. And Allah could have done it that way if He wished. He could have put everything that we need to know about Islam in the book. And the book could have been revealed. But if it were revealed in that fashion, it would be easy for somebody to say, man, this is too much. You know, a human being, he can't do this. It's beyond the ability of you. So, the Prophet, putting the book into practice is also for us, it provides us with confidence that it is possible for a human being to practice. It shows that it is within the realm or the ability of humans to do. You know, so it's like it's an example, a practical example. This is one of the purposes of the Sunnah. And one factor we can also understand from it is that 
the fact that Allah could have put everything in the Quran but didn't and made the Prophet Muhammad explain and show it also shows us that for us to um, follow Islam properly we have to go to Prophet Muhammad we have to go teaching us the proper way to approach the practice. Not that we pray to him, you know, asking him to do things for us. No, no. We're talking about application of Islam. And for example, Prophet Muhammad he said, in one statement reported by Aisha, he said, مَا تَرَكْتُ شَيْئًا يُقَرِّبُكُمْ إِلَى اللَّهِ إِلَّا وَأَمَّرْتُكُمْ I didn't leave anything which would bring you closer to Allah except that I told you to do it. Something which brings you close to the Lord, Allah means something which is religious. Any religious act, because the purpose of a religious act is to bring one closer to Allah, isn't it? When you do a religious act, you're seeking to please God. And to please God means that you want to get closer to God. If God is pleased with you, inshallah, you will be closer to God. So, he left this principle. He said, I didn't, there was nothing which would bring you closer to God except I told you to do it. And he goes on to say, وَمَا تَرَكْتُ شَيْئًا يُبَعِدُكُمْ عَنِ اللَّهِ وَيُقَرِّبُكُمْ إِلَى النَّارِ إِلَّا وَنَحَيْتُكُمْ عَنْكُمْ And I didn't leave anything which would take you away from Allah and take you closer to the hellfire except that I warned you away from it. So in terms of religion because if there are religious things the things that have to do with religion bring you closer to Allah and protect you from things which take you away from Allah. And in terms of religion, there is nothing which the Prophet Muhammad did not show us. It means that nobody can come along today and bring something new in the religion and say, well listen, you know, we need an extra salah. People today are getting farther away from Allah, the material world is, you know, working on them too hard. So five salahs in a day is not quite enough. We need an extra one. To make one at midnight. Compulsory also. You can't do that. Unacceptable. Allah knows the condition of mankind. How mankind is going to change in time, etc. Et if, if in the future it was going to be necessary to have six prayers compulsory in a day, he would have told Prophet Muhammad you know, that, okay, when such and such a time comes, now God brings it to the day. And he did. So we know it is fine. We don't accept any more than So this again is another aspect. So now, when we want to look at a statement of the Prophet Muhammad Uh, I just want to give you an example here of what a hadith looks like. Uh, some of you, I think, are familiar with read some of the hadith books.
Okay, there's one, there's one hadith here. You know, this is how the hadith looks in the books of hadith in Arabic. In English, as I said, what you're going to see is Anas said, the Prophet said, and the Prophet said, this is how you'll see it. You'll just see the name of the companion who said it. But what happened is that uh, when the Prophet Muhammad died, problems arose and uh, some solution had to be made for it. Or somebody wanted to know what to do. New people came into Islam, they wanted to know what to do. They would go to the companions of the Prophet and they would ask him, What do we do here? How do we make salah? So and so. He, they would say, I saw Prophet Muhammad do so and so. Or I heard Prophet Muhammad say so and so. They used this and they taught in this fashion. Also, some of the companions of the Prophet who came into Islam in the latter years, right, you know, in the, after the Hijra or, you know, close to the last years of the Prophet's life, they missed things which came earlier. They would learn just from practice, but some of them also were concerned to know what did the Prophet say on this. So they may learn and sit and study under some of the older companions who had been with the Prophet from the earlier times. So, when they were teaching somebody who came into Islam after the death of the Prophet, they would say, I heard from Anas, one of the older companions, who said that he saw the Prophet Muhammad do so and so. Okay? So now, when the generation of the companions died out, and those people who studied under them, they're called in Arabic, they're referred to them as Tabi'un. Tabi'un. It means the followers. Now it was their duty, because they were carrying Islam further, it was their duty to teach the new people who came into Islam. Or other people from, from their generation who didn't get a chance to sit and study with one of the companions. So now when they were asked the question, you know, how did the Prophet do so and so, they would say, they would say, I heard from the companion Ibn Abbas, that he saw the Prophet Muhammad do so and so, or he said that the Prophet Muhammad said so and so. Or they could have related it in this way. They could have said, for example, because they heard from a younger companion who heard from an older companion, they would say, I heard from Ibn Omar, who was a younger companion, who said that he heard from Anas, who was an older companion, that he saw the Prophet Muhammad do so and so. Okay? This is how they would always do it. To, to, to tell them something, if they were teaching the people, they would just say, Prophet Muhammad did this. He said this. They'd say, I heard from, because they would try to, to give them the authority. What is the basis under which they're saying that this Prophet Muhammad did this? So, in, in the generation of the companions, after the death of the Prophet, and even during his lifetime, some of the companions wrote down some of the things that they saw and they heard the Prophet the students who studied under the companions more of them wrote down what they saw and heard and in the generation which came after them many people began to write down what was said and heard now when you see a hadith like we have one hadith here in which it goes it says 
أخبرنا إسحاق ابن إبراهيم ابن إسماعيل. Okay. This is the person now who put this book of hadith together. He said he starts out by saying, Isaac ibn Ibrahim means Isaac, the son of Ibrahim, ibn Ismail, the son of Ismail. Right, in other words, Ismail is his grandfather, Isaac's grandfather. He informed us. حدثنا قتيبة ابن سعيد. يرفعنا سعد قتيبة ابن سعيد. سعد قال حدثنا خلف ابن خليفة. that he heard from خلف ابن خليفة. ابن always means son of. عن العلا ابن مسيب. who heard from العلا that's my name. The son of Al Musayyab. An Abihi, from his father. This person, Al Ala, heard from his father. An Abi Sa'id Al Khudri, who heard from Abu Sa'id Al Khudri, who was a companion of the Prophet, who said, Qala, Qala Rasulullah said, Walladhi nafsi biyadi, by the one in whose hand my soul is. In other words, he's swearing by God. God holds uh, the soul of everyone in his hands. All of you will definitely enter paradise except he who refuses. And runs away from Allah the way that a camel runs away. His companions ask, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of Allah, وَمَنْ يَعْبَهُ Who would refuse? And yet, who would refuse to enter paradise? Qala, Prophet Muhammad said, مَنْ أَطَعْنِي Sorry. مَنْ أَطَعْنِي دَخَلَ الْجَنَّةِ Whoever obeys me, enters paradise. وَمَنْ عَطَعْنِي فَقَدْ عَبَى Whoever disobeys me, has refused. Okay? So before the statement of the Prophet Muhammad we see so and so said the chain of narrations. Right? This section of a hadith, this is how the hadith comes when you look in the hadith books that are said in Arabic. This is how they bring it. This is what we call chain of narrators, and then at the end of it, the statement of the Prophet. Or they describe the action of the Prophet. Now, so from that we can say that a hadith is divided into two parts, basically. We have what is we call the chain of narrators. In Arabic, this is called the Sanad. And the other part of the of the hadith is called the text. Which in Arabic is known as the um, Okay. So, 
the chain of the narrators we have in the chain we have an, an individuals who heard from the prophet or heard from another individual heard from another individual who heard from the prophet or saw the prophet now in looking at hadith what happened is that after the time of the prophet and after the time of the companions remember in the last session we talked about certain groups that broke away from Islam we talked about the Khawarij we talked about the Shia the two main groups which broke away from the main body of Islam to support their practices some of them made up statements of Islam they fabricated, falsified certain statements of the tried to support what they were doing or what they were saying. So, in, in that generation, uh, one of the caliphs of, of uh, one of the, the later generations there, a couple of generations after the prophet, whose name was Omar ibn Abdul Aziz, he told the scholars in the various regions of Islam, the Islamic realm, he told them to collect up all the hadith. Collect them all up, start writing them down, and analyzing them. So that those people who were making up statements would be known. Those who falsified statements, of course, their hadith would not be considered, or their statements, statements which they attributed to the Prophet, would not be considered to be authentic or true. And, as I said, what happens that those people who collected up the hadith at this time, what they did was, they collected up the hadith along with uh, certain statements about everybody who was narrating. They started to make certain biographical statements. So-and-so is from such a place. Uh, he was born in you know, uh, he studied with so and so and he studied with this one you know, all the information about the people who were narrating hadith this was being recorded also so what happens is that you, you dev- they also developed uh, at this time in the, the writing down of all the hadith they developed a body of biographical material which described all the people who were, who were narrating hadith whether they were people who were falsely narrating or whether they were not falsely narrating they wrote it all down later on what happened, you know, in the um, generation after that, you had certain, because the, the Muslim Ummah had uh, started to split up. The leadership, the Caliph was doing practices and things which are not really Islamic. So a lot of the scholars of that time, they didn't want to be around the Caliph. So they went to areas far away from the centers. And what happened is that when problems arose in their area, they would give certain... Uh, judgment as to how to solve these problems. And they would do it based on the narrations of hadith that they heard or that were available in the area that they were. So you found scholars in various parts of the Muslim realm, you know, making certain decisions. Among these scholars, some of them were, you know, obviously very, very good. Their reasoning powers were very intense, etc., etc. But others were not as good. So, the ones who were very good, you find, found a lot of students, people who wanted to study about the Islam, they would gather around these. And what started to develop was what they called 
school of thought, in a school of legal thought. This is what they call in Arabic, they call them madhab. Madhab. You hear of Maliki, Shafi'i, Hanbali, you know, and the Hanafi. These were schools of thought which developed in this Now, what happened is that in this time, when the schools of thought were developing, the scholars in the various areas, they didn't know all the hadith. They only knew the hadith that they had gathered and what was available in their area. So because of that, you would find that some scholars in one area may make one decision which was different from that which was made in another area. Right? The attitude of the scholars at that time was that if somebody came from the other area where he had, there was a narration, a narration of hadith, which proved a particular point, and he told it to the scholar of the other area who had made a ruling but didn't have a narration of hadith. He just made it on reasoning because that was all that was available. If he, if he was told that, listen, there is this narration of hadith that, that, that shows that the ruling should really be this, he would say, okay, fine, shukran. Thank you. And he would make a new ruling. In later times, the students, you see, uh, scholars may amongst themselves be very open you bring the information, I go according to the information. But there's a tendency among students that they tend to want to elevate their teachers and boast about my teacher. They feel very strongly about my teacher. So you have this feeling starting to develop in later generations that those people who studied under, students who studied under a particular teacher, they wanted to kind of hold on to whatever rulings were made and they didn't care whatever the others said. So you started to get people becoming rigid in one way, and rigid in another way. And they were not looking anymore to see, what did the Prophet say? And this kind of feeling was also um, fostered or developed by the caliphs in the Abbasid period. What they used to do is they would have debates, you know, like Ahmadidat and Swagat and so on. But except this is between Christian and Muslim. No, what they did was they would bring Muslims. They would have in their court a Muslim scholar. They'd bring a scholar from one school, they'd bring a scholar from another school, and they would make up a problem. They'd say, how do we solve the problem? And the one who gave the best solution, he would win a prize. See? So, what this did now is that, of course, if two scholars, and this is many generations now after the founding scholars, if two scholars are now competing like this, they don't want to give ground. They don't want to lose because they want to win that prize. They're not now. They're not now debating to try and find what is the truth. They're trying to debate to win the prize. So this is going to develop in the person what you know that he does. No matter how wrong he is, he will still hang on and argue trying to you know till he just beat. <laughs> this is this is the attitude. So so this this again made people even more rigid about the schools of thought being followed. You understand? So this was handed down in generations. But what happened is that, you know, after this, the generations of the early scholars who started the, uh, these schools of thought, a generation after them, you had some uh, people or students who were mostly concerned with collecting narrations. So they went across the Muslim realm from one end to the other, collecting up everything. And what they did was they looked in these biographies, the biographies about the different people who were narrating, and tried to just sift out only the accurate narration. Some of them were concerned with just gathering everything, 
some of them were concerned with gathering only the accurate ones. And they now put together books in which all of the statements. They were not concerned with who was my teacher and who no, they didn't care about that. They just wanted to get these hadith together. Right? And so you had now books of hadith which developed, in which all the hadith were all written down. Okay? So now when we look today, right, of course depending on where you come into Islam, so some of you may accept Islam here in Saudi Arabia. The school of thought followed here is the Hanbali school of thought. Some of you uh, may go from Philippines, you're Muslim from there, and you go to study in different parts, you may go to Egypt. And in Egypt you may study under the Shafi school, the, the most common school. Or if you go to study in Pakistan, you may study under the Hanafi school. And if some of you went to the Sudan, you would study under the Maliki school. So now when you all go back to Philippines to come do some work, Right. And a problem comes up, and what? No, no. What is this? I was no, no, no. It's this. I said no. According to my school, it's this. I said no. It's my confusion. Confusion. Some people say, well, it's they're all right, but they can't. They can't all be right. You know, if one says this is haram, another says no, it's haram. How can they both be right? Can't be. Because the truth is only truth is one. We have to now go back to see what Allah has promised there. And Allah says this is a verse in the Quran in which it says that if you have any differences amongst yourself, take it back to Allah and His Prophet. In other words, go back to the Quran and to the Sunnah to resolve it. That's it. That's how we resolve the problem. There's no harm in studying from the different schools, but we should study with an open mind. And we should understand that ultimately, it is what the Prophet said, and what the Quran said, and what his companions did. This is what determines what is Islam and what is not Islam. What is correct and what is incorrect. Okay? So, when we look at hadith now, see the scholars, remember we said they gathered all the hadith up and um, into the different books and they gathered up the biographies a science of analyzing hadith develops how to critically analyze the hadith develops. how do we determine which hadith is authentic and which hadith is not authentic the authentic hadith they call sahih you'll hear it sahih or better written this way sahih And the weak hadith was called Zaif. Okay? Now, we'll hear these statements from time to time. Person say, oh no, this is a Zaif hadith. This is a weak hadith. No, it's a hadith. How do they determine what hadith are Zaif? And what hadith are Zaif? Well, for the most part, it's going to be concerning the Senate. The is what is going to determine what is Sahih and what is Sahih, for the most part. They state, according to the scholars now of this area, criticizing Hadith, they state that for a Hadith to be considered Sahih, it has to fulfill three basic conditions. 
you know, of course, I mean, as we're looking at this here, right, I mean, some of you are studying in university, and this you'll end up studying and so on, so, so directly related to you. Some of you are not studying in university, right? And uh, this may not have major significance to you. That's why I'm only going to touch it in a general sense, to just give you a general idea, to understand what, you know, Islam and the knowledge of Islam, it's not just a haphazard thing. You know, anybody can say what he wants to say and anybody can do what he wants to do. No, it's very technical. There's a whole system behind it. The, the reason why we say this is, this is, this is not so, so, it has scientific knowledge behind it, scientifically analyzed, concerns the people in the chain. The people in the chain have to have all met each other. In Arabic they call it Ittifalat Sanat. They have to have all met each other. So we can call it in English continuity. Continuity means that something is continuous. Following one, following the other. Continuity of change. Okay, in Arabic we just write it simply. We'll try to dissolve. What this means is that when we look at the biographies of the people, we say we see somebody saying, you know, say his name is Muhammad. Muhammad says in his in Kenya, he said, I heard from Ishaq that so and so and so. When we look in the, the list of biographies, we see that Muhammad, he was born in the um, 700, or of course, 880. Huh? No, no, I'm going to say, not the prophet, the person who's saying this, the guy Muhammad, he was born, we say he was born in 800. So we shouldn't even really use AD, actually. AD, Islamically, is not acceptable. Right? We use AD or CE, Christian era. Right? Because AD actually comes from Latin, Anna Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. So it doesn't mean after death. Some people think AD means after death. It doesn't mean that. AD is Anna Domini, it means in the year of our Lord. Lord, they're referring to Jesus. We don't consider Jesus our Lord, so really it's not acceptable to use AD. It's better to use, say, CE or AD, after Christ or he used in Christian era also on the dictionary so he say he was born in 800 CE and Ishaq died in 798 he said something wrong here if he said he heard from Ishaq and he was born after Ishaq died could he possibly have heard from Ishaq no so we don't have Ishaq once we see that, we say this hadith is right. By the way. Okay? That's one way. Another way, for example, he lived, we see another man, his name is, you know, uh, Abu Khuzayma. He lived in Iraq. And when we read his biography, we see that he never traveled outside of Iraq. He only studied amongst scholars of Iraq. And he says, I heard from Khalid. And we look in Khalid's biography. Khalid lived in Egypt. And he never traveled to Iraq. We say again, something wrong here. How could 
Abu Khuzayma here from Khalid when Abu Khuzayma never left Iraq no record of him leaving Iraq and going over to Egypt and no record of Khalid leaving Egypt and going to Iraq how could he possibly have heard from him? we say again we don't have this condition of the we don't have a continuous chain we say this hadith is life weak ok these are the, some of the conditions I mean there are a number of others which relate back to this ok second one second principle is what we call in Arabic we call it Adul you know Adul literally means justice right but what they're referring to here they're referring to the fact that the people who are narrating were all known to be practicing right? they're not known to be liars you know people who are breaking the rules of the So when we look in the biographies again, we might find somebody, this man, his name is um, Ismail. He lives in Iraq. In the same time period as uh, Abdurrahman. Matter of fact, he even attended some of the same study circles as mentioned in there because what used to happen is that the, those people who narrated hadith, they would say, I heard from so-and-so. And so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so used to attend the circles along with him. They would mention all the people the whole body of information which identify the people and where they studied and who they studied with and all that so we have Ismail saying I heard from Abdullah but now we have reports of the people of Ismail's time saying that we saw Ismail uh, drinking alcohol we saw Ismail drunk once they have that information get it Ismail is crossed off his Indian hadith that he reports are considered right away this is how particular Muslims were about see in the west it doesn't matter you know what your personal life is about you know they, when they are going to judge whether information is, is acceptable or not they don't look into the person's personal life right you know like for example uh, you, may, you may look into people like uh, Freud Jimmy yeah, Jimmy Swaggart and so on. So. Although, you know, this does come into a certain degree, but I'm saying in terms of the passing on such information, if we look at Freud, right, Freud now is the father of psychology, psychiatry, and whole science, which has to do with analyzing the human mind, you know, and all that kind of thing. His, his name is Freud. Now, when you look into Freud's personal life, he was terrible. He was a terrible individual. His personal life was terrible. His children committed suicide. But yet, what he has taught has become now the basis of this whole area of knowledge. Because they don't look into people's personal lives. They don't judge information based on the personal lives. Whereas in Islam, no. We judge according to actually in Surah al the principles right there. Allah says there, and if somebody comes to you with information but he is a facet facet means you know he doesn't pray regularly you know he may drink alcohol or he's doing some things which are outside of Islam so you better check that information check it out thoroughly don't accept this information and it's the basic principle 
So, if we find somebody of that of, of bad character, a known liar, for example, how will they know if this guy's a known liar? Because, see, a liar, he always trips himself up. You know, you see people where you watch programs where they have the guy in, in court, right, giving evidence. He says yes, so and so and so and the lawyer asks him this and that and this and the guy's trying to keep track of all these different things. Eventually he says, Daddy, oh, but you said this before. Right? Because the liar, because he's not telling the truth. You see, if you tell him the truth, no matter how many different ways in which you ask this question, I'm going to give you the same answer. Because it's the truth. But now if you're a liar, if you made up a story, right? You know, you can ask different angles. This is what the lawyers train themselves at. They ask different angles and that you say this and that and they give you, make you feel confident. Yes, you're right. And then they bring this person and you say this and ah, see, you said this contradicts what you said here. Well, because you're a liar. This is, it will come out. Right? Similarly, you had people, they would never, they would say, I heard from so-and-so, heard from so-and-so, heard that the Prophet said so-and-so. Right? He's a liar now. He tells this to one person. Another person comes again, he tells him, I heard so-and-so. He changes some people in the chain now. And he changes some of what the Prophet said. Because you can't remember exactly, you know, there's going to be variations. So now when these scholars, when they're gathering the narrations from this guy, and they find, he told so-and-so this way, he told so-and-so that way, he told so-and-so that way, and that was that way, they say, this guy's a liar. <laughs> he's a liar, obviously, he's a liar. Especially if, for example, other people who were in the same circles with him said something different altogether. They said, definitely he's a liar. Okay? So the hadith is cancelled out on the basis Okay? This is one of the conditions. The third condition is known as dub. No, it's not known as dub. Dub, dub, that's the literature. This is dub. Dub. Dub means like accuracy. Right? Accuracy. And as we said, it could mean the honesty. Okay, accuracy, dubbed. Now, dubbed comes, they have two forms of dubbed. They have what they call dubbed to sadr and dubbed to kitaba. Dubbed to sadr, accuracy in the sense of memorization or accuracy in the sense of having written things down. So, they look at the narrator. If this narrator was a person who used to write down, if he attended the circles and he used to write down the information. So, the person who narrates from, narrate from that which was written then he has certainty that the information he's passing on is accurate. If the person, for example, has a good memory, it will show in his narration. Each time he narrates, it will be the same. And that's how they judge these people. They look at what they all narrated. If they narrated, if they saw some slight variations, it meant his memory was not very strong. If they saw major, di- uh, major differences, they said this man's memory is weak, he considered that he's like. Some people, for example, when they were young, they used to narrate very accurately. But when they got old, you know, people get senile, they start things get mixed up. So it's not that he's, this guy's a liar now, he's different from the other one. He's not a liar, he's just trying to people, but he's got things mixed up in his mind. He might co- narrate a correct chain of narration, but the statement that he puts at the end really belongs to another chain of narration, because things are getting a little mixed up in this whole age. So they will say, okay, they will write down, they make a note, that this man, if, 
If he narrates in his early part of his life, we accept his hadith as sahih. Those which he narrates in the latter part of his life, we consider sahih, because this is when his memory has gone. Okay? So these are the basic uh, conditions. Of course, you know, if these conditions exist, then the hadith is considered sahih. If the conditions don't exist, then the hadith is considered sahih. So those are the main two categories. For example, you'll find, for example, one hadith which is narrated by or attributed to Ali ibn Abi Talib, one of the companions of the Prophet. He's the, uh, he's the son-in-law of the Prophet, as well as his cousin. Narrated that he said that the place for putting one's hands in Salah is right over the neck, below the neck. We have another hadith reported by Fawus that when the Prophet prayed, he's describing the Prophet's prayer, when the Prophet prayed, he prayed with his right hand or his left hand on his chest. So we have two statements. Now we have to determine, are these two statements, because we have these two statements, okay? We also have, say for example, in sitting, we have one companion reporting that he saw the Prophet sit in his salah with his feet together and he's behind on the bottoms and the heels of his feet. That means he sat like this. Yeah. Sitting on the heels at the bottom of his feet. Then there is another narration where they say he sat with his left foot bent on the heel and the bottom of it and his right foot propped up. Then there's another narration that he sat on his left side with his right foot propped up and his left foot under the chin of his right foot. Okay? So we have all these narrations. We go and we look to see now what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. What is accurate what is inaccurate. When we look for the hadith concerning praying with the hand, we find that, of course, Ali ibn Abi Talib, he is automatically considered honest. We don't have any doubt about his self. Or, uh, what we have to look now at is the continuity of the chain. Those who came after, were they all meeting each other? Were they all known for their, their honesty and their accuracy? When we look into that chain, we find that there were certain individuals in the chain who were known liars. So that hadith considered life. When we look into the other chain concerning that of Fawus, we find that the chain, the people all met each other, honest accuracy is there, so we find that that hadith is life. So now when we look in terms of judging, placing the hands below the navel or put placing the hands on the chest, we have only one choice here, because the only one which is authentic is the placing of the hands on the chest. This other one is life. It's weak. Not, you cannot build a law of Islam on that practice. Because the hadith on which it's built is weak, unauthentic. So the only correct position is the hand on the chest. Whether it is here or, you know, where on the chest, it just said he placed his hand on the chest. So once the chest now starts from, you know, where the ribs are, so anywhere from here on up, that is the correct position. 
when we look into the hadith concerning the city, we find that all of them have continuity of the chain. All of them, if people are honest, all of them, they were good their right. So what do we have here? We have three practices of the Prophet. In other words, sometimes he sat like that. Sometimes he sat the other way, and sometimes he sat so it means we have an option here now. If you want, if it's easier for you to sit like that, okay. If it's easier for you to sit the other way, okay. Sit the other way, okay. Understand? So it is the hadith and the accuracy and the witness of the hadith which tell us which things in Islam are options. Options means you can do this or do that or do the other. And which things are, there's only one way. You understand? This is this is what this is how we determine now what is Islam by going back to Hadith. That's why I said all of you should buy Sahih Bukhari because most, I won't say contains all of the accurate Hadith, but probably about 75% of the accurate Hadith are there. So whatever you find in that, you can work with them. It's very, very accurate. And when you go back to your communities, whatever, you should call people to this same principle. Now let us you know, go according to what is we know to be authentic. Those things we have doubt about, we don't know where it came from, so and so said it with his opinion. We say, let's leave those to come to what Muhammad hmm? So this is the basis for the hadith system of hadith. Okay, inshallah, I'll stop here now. And um, just leave the thing open now for any of you if you have any questions based on what we've covered first and then general questions if you have any general questions stuff you've read during the week or things that you've read <coughs> earlier things, some of things you read in some books that are not clear to you whatever you know you can now ask any of no I didn't say that no I said that Sahih Bukhari and Muslim contain about 75% of the accurate hadith. There's two differences in the two statements. Right? No. The hadith in Bukhari and Muslim are 100% accurate. See, there are other books. You have Sunan uh, Abu Dawood, Sunan Al-Tirmidhi, Sunan Al-Nasai. Uh, no, Nawawi is later. You know, that's Arba'in and Nawawi. That's much later because when you look in Nawawi, he's going to say the hadith came from Bukhari or came from Muslim or came from somebody else, right? So these are the main ones, like this is Sahih ibn Khuzayma, right? Oh, this is sorry, sorry, Sahih ibn Hibban, ibn Hibban. He is one of the collectors of hadith. So you have a number of these different books. But in the other books, you have some hadith which are weak, and some hadith which are authentic. In the case of Bukhari and Muslim, you have 100%. But I'm saying, for in terms of looking for the basic practices and principles of Islam, about 75% of them can be found in Bukhari and Muslim, and you know when they're found there that they're correct. Right? So it means it's a very reliable book. The same way, inshallah, every day you read some from your, from your Quran, you should open up some of the Bukhari or Muslim, read them there to increase your knowledge of Islam. Right? Any other questions? Praying and doing, you know, 
Well, when we go and look at the hadith, we will find that there are some hadith describing the Prophet Muhammad putting his name. Okay? But these hadith, according to scholars of hadith, are like all Whereas, in terms of putting the hand first, you have hadith, which is reported by Abu Huraira, in which which he said as a that whenever any of you make the jewels, you should, you should not do it the way that the camel does. Put your hands before your knees. Put your hands before your knees. And before it. The hadith goes, it says, kama yabrukun bahir, yadehi, of course, people have gotten some philosophical arguments about how the camel kneels and whether his really his knees come before his hands, because of course camels don't have hands. Right? So now he gonna determine but the point is that the second part of the hadith is clear. He said, Waliyadahyadehi put his hands down, put his hands down before it. So this is the more accurate. This is the more accurate fact. Okay? I'm saying, if you go to all the different people, as I said, you may find the different arguments based on the different schools and so on. But if you just come back to the hadith and the analyzing of the hadith, you see which book correct. I mean, one book you can see it in is, for example, the book of, uh, it's called Bulugh al-Maran, collected by one of the big hadith scholars of some centuries back. His name is uh, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani. And he is the one who does the most famous commentary of Sahih Bukhari. This commentary is like 18 volumes. Those nine books that told you Bukhari is like nine volumes that turns into 18 volumes. Have you go to a next explanation, bringing all the hadith, different books and so on, relating to the notes on the past volumes. And he brings these two hadith and points out that the one going down with your knees first is weak, or the one coming with the hands first. Even though in his school, the school that he learned according to Islamic law, in his school, they preferred to put their knees before their hands, but he went against it. Because he was not concerned with what the school said. He was just concerned with what the said. So that's the more accurate. No. No. Because the hadith actually comes in Sahih Bukhara. Uh, Sahih. Uh, no, uh, Sunan Abi Dawood. This is where it is right now. That's what I said. It's 75%, it's not everything. Because in the hadith which are described in Bukhari and Muslim, they don't mention. See, because what happens is the companion, when he's explaining, he may be trying to explain something about raising of the hands. So naturally, if he's talking about raising of the hands, he doesn't want to talk about where the knees and which one is. So those hadiths which are found there, they're describing certain aspects of the salah. They didn't describe every single last aspect. Like the one of placing the hand on the chest, this also is not in Sayyid Bukhari. This is in another, another topic of Hadith. Abu Dawood. 
This one is translated into English. The only other one besides Bukhari and Muslim is Abu Dawood. Huh? Yeah, this is Sunan Abu Dawood. Abu Dawood. Tirmidhi. Al-Nasai. And Ibn Majah. Those are the most famous ones. They make up six. But there are others, which are, you know, actually just as important as Sahih Ibn Shaban. And, and Muslim Ahmed. Okay, any other questions? Any brothers from the youth in the session? Is there anything which you like to clarification on? I begin by praising Allah as usual and sending Allah's blessings to his last Prophet Muhammad and to his companions and all those who followed his righteous path and continue to follow his righteous path until the Day of Judgment. Now, uh, last session we dealt with hadith. We looked at different aspects of hadith. Uh, we said that hadith represented the sayings, actions, and approvals of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, which were passed on by his companions to the generation after them and then from them to those after them and collected in books which we know of books of hadith and we mentioned certain books which are the more important books and after that we went and looked at we looked at the, the reasons why it, it, it became necessary to pass on the hadith from one generation to the other the circumstances under which they passed on it and then we looked at the hadith itself the text of the hadith and tried to have an understanding of an analysis of the hadith itself. And we said that the hadith, you know, was broken into two parts, and uh, one part we referred to as the senate of the hadith, which is the chain of narrators, the other part, the text of the hadith. The other word I couldn't remember at the time, this another word they used also, which is called matin. Uh, it's not often carried, but matin is the most commonly used one to indicate the text. So, <coughs> we said the hadith is divided into two basic parts, the senate, the chain of narrators and then the matin or the nut at the end what was being transmitted by the narrators and we said that the hadith were divided into two basic groups those which are considered sahih and those which are da'if sahih meaning authentic and da'if meaning unauthentic or weak right there is a secondary category of sahih which is also called hasan and this is sort of a finer distinction, but it's also included in this general category of Sahih. It means the hadith is authentic. And when we say that what this means when we have a hadith which is authentic and a hadith which is not authentic, is that Islamic law, because we said that the second, when we looked at the, the four basic um, foundations for Islamic law, we said there were Quran, Sunnah, Ijma, and Qiyas. We said that the Sunnah 
was conveyed by hadith. Right? When we talk about the sunnah being a source of Islamic law, what we are in effect talking about are hadith. Because the sunnah was conveyed, the sunnah is what has been encompassed in the hadith. The hadith contain more than just the sunnah of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Because hadith may also refer to incidents which happened in his time, but were not necessarily involving himself. Right? So the hadith, actually the term hadith is wider than the term sunnah. But the sunnah is contained in hadith. So now, when we're going to talk about building Islamic law or establishing a point of Islamic law to say, well, we should do this or we should not do that, or this is the way that we should go about doing this thing, the basis under which we determine that after the Quran will be the Sunnah from the practice of the Prophet Muhammad. Now, that practice, we have to be sure that the practice, we have to be sure that that practice was authentic. Because a valid point of Islamic law can only be based on an authentic hadith. A weak hadith cannot be used to establish any point of Islamic law. Weak meaning it is unauthentic. This is, this is the division that we have, what we have to know, because you may have some practices which develop in different places which are based on weak or unauthentic hadith. And these types of hadith obviously were going to create some confusion, you know, amongst the ummah itself. Because if a person hangs on to a practice which is unauthentic, more than likely it will contradict something which is authentic. And so you may have people wanting to do contradicting things. And the only way that we can resolve it, as Allah said, as Allah said in the Quran, that, you know, if you had, if you had any <coughs> dispute amongst yourselves, for duhu rasuli, you should take it back. You should take it back to Allah and His Apostle. What does that mean? Right? Taking it means we take it back to the Quran. If we have a dispute amongst ourselves, a difference of opinion, we take it back to the Quran. Meaning, we go to look in the Quran to see is there a solution for this problem here, or we take it back to the Prophet, which is taking it back to the Sunnah. And the only way that the Sunnah can now become a decisive uh, principle to end argument and establish the correct way is if we, we agree and we depend on the authentic Sunnah, which is based on obviously authentic Hadith. Then we looked at the conditions, the basic conditions which determine or make a Hadith authentic, and obviously the, the, the lack of these conditions would be that which makes Hadith unauthentic. First one we said was continuity of the chain of narrators, in Arabic referred to as the Kisala Senate. The second one we looked at was called Adul, that is the honesty, the trustworthiness of the people involved. And the third was Dabt, accuracy, and we said the Dabt came in two forms, Dabt Sadr, that is memorizing, that the person was very good at memorizing, and Dabt is Kitaba, that the person used to write down whatever he heard. That's the basic, this is just a quick summary of what we took before. We did that in detail. And now we we'll go on from there. He said that the Sunnah was contained within the Hadith. Now, <coughs> before we can use the Sunnah as a point of law, there's another thing we have to look at. The Prophet Muhammad was both a man, a human being, in the time 
of the seventh, uh, eighth century, as well as being a prophet. There may be a tendency you may find in some writings and in some communities, cultures, to elevate the prophet to a point of almost divinity. Because Jesus is considered God. In the other communities around us, or around Muslims or wherever Islam was, we find other individuals who have been elevated to the point where they are either gods or demigods, half-gods. So Muslims, some Muslims in ignorance, try to to make the Prophet Muhammad become equal to the gods of these other cultures. They elevated him to a point that said of almost uh, of, of uh, almost divinity. There's a book, a very uh, popular book, for example, which is printed in Pakistan, and you know, I came across it when I was in Canada. It's called The Shadowless Prophet. As a matter of fact, I have a copy of it. Oh, I brought it. But I brought it for reference, you know, when I'm writing, when I'm trying to clarify this point. It's a very good book. It's called The Shadowless Prophet. In this book, this person wrote a whole book explaining how the Prophet had no shadow. Think about that. It, that he, they had elevated him now to the point. He was no longer a human walking on the earth. We all, when we walk and the sun is there, we have a shadow. But now here was someone walking, he had no shadow. When he looked in the mirror, there was no reflection. He was a spiritual being. Although the people saw him as a physical being, according to this author, he was a spiritual being. Look at that. And he goes on in the book to talk about how, you know, how, um, you know, the Prophet Muhammad they have a principle that's called a Nur al-Muhammadi. I don't know if you've heard about it. The Muhammadan light. You may hear about it, you may come across it in reading. Uh, the Shiites use it a lot in their concepts because they've elevated uh, the Imams, we talked about that some sessions back, you know, about their attitude and their approach to the Imams, they've elevated them in this fashion. And for the Imams to be elevated to the point where, according to the Shiites, the Imams know the future, they know when they're going to die, you know, all these kind of this knowledge that the atoms of the universe are submitted to them, in this type of attitude of the Shiites, obviously if they feel that way about the Imams, when you go to look at the way they feel about the Prophet Muhammad it has to be that way and more so. Right? Because the Imams are descendants of the Prophet Muhammad Right? So, they believe, you know, as this man also put in the book also, the man who wrote the book is not a Shiite, but this idea is common among the Shiite, that, you know, a piece of Allah's light, you know, which was there, eternal, this piece of Allah's light, when He created Adam, it was with Adam. And it was handed down generation and generation and generation until it manifested itself in Prophet Muhammad. This is what they call the Muhammadan light. This light now is divine because it's a piece of Allah's light. Allah is divine. Right? So when they're projecting this, they're projecting that 
Muhammad was in essence a divine and eternal being. This is totally against Islamic concept. In Islam, Allah is the only eternal being, having no beginning, no end. This attribute can in no way this attribute can in no way be given to Prophet Muhammad. To do so is shirk. To do so is shirk. It cancels Tawheed. It cancels the basic pillar of Islam. Back to our concept. We said of the Sunnah. The Sunnah could be divided based on the fact that Prophet Muhammad said was both a man and a prophet. It could be divided into two basic categories. Sunnah, which is called Sunnah Tabi'iyah. which is called natural. And the other category is called Sunnah Tashri'iyah or legal. What do we mean by that? We mean that When we look in our body of hadith, we're looking at the sunnah, because we said sunnah was the, the saying, action, approval of the Prophet. When we look at the sunnah, now we go into a hadith and we gather our hadith concerning the Prophet. We see some body of the hadith involves <coughs> certain actions of the Prophet Muhammad which were obviously not intent or were not intended to be guidance for the Ummah until Yawm Qiyamah. There were some actions which were his own personal actions which had nothing to do with Islam. Some people might say, ha, this is blasphemy. They say, this is, you know, like heresy to say that the Prophet ﷺ did something which was not, you know, required or, or, or Islamic or they say this is part of Islam. This is like blasphemy to some people. They have a book which is Shema'i uh, al-Tirmidhi which is written by uh, one of the scholars of Hadith named Tirmidhi. He compiled in it all of the various practices and descriptions of the Prophet Things that have to do with his habits. You know, to get to, from reading that book you get a picture of who Prophet was. You know, they describe how long his hair was, you know, his beard, you know, what type of clothes he used to wear, how he used to walk, the type of shoes he used to wear, you know, different things in his life, his habits. What were all his personal habits, right? It's called Shama'il Al-Tirmidhi. Now this book has been translated into English. And I have a copy of it at home. But the translator who translated it, I think it was originally translated into Urdu in Pakistan and then from Urdu into English. But now the person who translated it from Arabic into Urdu he had this idea that whatever the Prophet did was uh, divinely inspired and with guidance and has benefit for everybody until Yom So each and every little action that the Prophet did, he tried to, you know, give some kind of explanation as to how this is beneficial and so on and so forth. But this gives a very distorted picture. Uh, that in spite of the fact that to some people it might sound, you know, heretical or, you know, un-Islamic. No. When we look honestly, 
into the Sunnah, we will have to come to this conclusion. Because from the Prophet Muhammad's own practice, he explained to his companions that there were two aspects to Islam. There's a very famous hadith in which the Prophet Muhammad when he came to Medina, he found this hadith, the authentic hadith. He found the companions there artificially pollinating the date palm. In Mecca, they didn't use the rain right? but in Medina they did. And they used to artificially pollinate. Now, when we look at the principles of Islam, you know, Islamic attitude towards life in general and human habits, we see that Islam dislikes the artificial. There's a general dislike for things which are artificial. Destroying or the changing of the natural process of things. And there's even one verse in the Quran where Allah talks to Shaitan is saying that, you know, that He will command you. You know, He will call you and command you till you change the, the, the uh, fitrah of Allah. I mean, the things that Allah, the, the normal process by which Allah has been. Command you and encourage you to change. Now, we know, for example, the Prophet forbade tattoos. Forbade tattoos, tattooing, you know, where you go and they use a needle and puncture your skin and put color into it until you form some kind of design. You know, it's very popular, especially among sailors, you know, to have these various designs and so forth. But it's forbidden in Islam. And we know that he forbade, for example, for women plucking their eyebrows. This is very popular in the West. You know, they pluck the eyebrows. Maybe for people, if they have kind of bushy type eyebrows, they'll pluck it all off and then just take a line and draw a line. You know, with a pencil. They have a special one called eyebrow pencil, right? Or they have false eyelashes. They'll put all these false eyelashes with the eyelashes. There are a lot of women, right? Very common. Wigs. Prophet forbade that Allah cursed the one who wears the wig and the one who puts on the wig. I mean, not only cursing the one who wears it, but the one who puts it on, too. That Allah cursed that And the case where, actually the Prophet said it, there was a case where a woman, an older woman, her daughter had gotten some sickness and her hair fell out. And she wanted her daughter to get married. So she wanted, she came and asked him if he could make a kind of a hairpiece for her. You know, because who's going to marry her if her hair is all falling out? The Prophet said that Allah curses the ones who wear the wigs and the ones who put it on. Because it's deception. It gives a false impression. Islam doesn't like that. Okay, it's artificial. Okay, so we should understand this. This is Prophet Muhammad he told him that because this was told to him by Allah. He commanded them. Okay? So, this is a set of the general principle. But there are exceptions. Because at the same time that this exists as a general principle, the Prophet Muhammad said that we should clip our fingernails and our toenails, clip the hair from our armpits and from around our private parts, And that should be done, you know, you should not let the hair grow for any longer than 40 days. 
That's the maximum. You should try to do it regularly. Try to read you want. You should clean yourself up. The one who argues. Natural. It's natural to have your arm. You certainly brush it twice. Blow your fingernails, right? It is natural. So here now, Islam has laid a principle which is going against the natural way. Right? So it appears. But you see, when you analyze it, I mean, any doctor will tell you. When they're preparing a woman to give birth, what do they do? They shave all the hair around the private part. Why? Huh? Because these areas, because these are areas, Islam forbids you to shave pieces of hair out of your head. It's one of the things that are forbidden. You're allowed to shave it all off when you make Umrah. Right? Or Hajj. Or if you decide, you know, you just want to get your hair off, you can shave it all off. But it doesn't allow you to shave pieces, you know, like some people have what they call a Mohican haircut. So they have to put the hair down the middle, right? They shave off everything on the side. There are Indians in North America, a certain group of Indians called the Mohicans. Also, Mr. T. Mr. T, right? He's got pieces shaved off. This is forbidden Islam. Okay? Now, the.